0: Good morning, church. The rain is deafening. Can you hear me? All right, find your Bibles and open them with me this morning to the book of Revelation. We're in the second chapter, looking at the seven letters to the churches. The mark of a strong Christian is whether or not he or she can bounce back after they're wounded. The mark of a strong church is whether or not they can bounce back after the membership has been wounded. Now find your Bibles and look with me at chapter 2 beginning in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, says, I know your tribulation and poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, The devil is about to throw some of you in prison to test you. And you'll have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful in the death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Anyone who has an ear to hear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The victor will never be harmed by the second death. Now, we're looking at all seven of these churches. This morning, we're looking at Smyrna, and we're going to entitle our study, A Wounded Church. A Wounded Church. In, uh, in Pflugerville, those of you who don't know, I was pastor there before I came here to be your interim pastor. During the height of the conflict in Afghanistan, one of the men in our church came up to me just before uh, one of our worship services and said, Pastor. My son is going to be here today. Do you think you could just recognize him? I said, sure, sure. His son was one of ours. He'd grown up in our church. He was a product of our, of our children's ministry. He was a product of our youth ministry. He was a bit of a handful of times. But he was returning as a war hero. Now here's kind of his story. He was in a personnel carrier along with some other soldiers. The road on which they were traveling had been rigged, and they set off an IED just as they got over it. The vehicle was blown into the air. Some of the men were killed. All of them were wounded. Our young man climbed out of the vehicle, wounded as he was, picked up his weapon, chased down the three enemy insurgents into their village, tracked them down fought with them, captured them, took them prisoner of war, and brought them back to the vehicle and secured them there to that hollowed-out uh, burned vehicle that they were in. Then he began tending to the wounds of his comrades and saved their lives. Because of his heroic actions, he was given the Silver Star. And so I read the accommodation as he stood beside me there. I brought him on stage. As I read the accommodation to his church family when I got to the end, his church family stood eyes full of tears and gave him a sounding, round, standing ovation. I couldn't help but notice his his eyes had teared up also. Now, he was wounded, and he went down, but he stood back up, and he went back to it. That's the sign of strength. That's the sign of strength. We're going to be looking at that here this morning. Christians who are living for the Lord are going to get wounded. Chris already pointed out, John 16, Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble. In this life you will have tribulation. Christians in this life are going to get wounded. Some stay down for the count. But the strong ones bounce back. Churches get wounded. Some of them never recover. But the strong churches bounce back, return to the work. Jesus, here in our passage, has no criticism for strong churches, nothing but praise. He spoke only words of compassion, encouragement, and hope. This church, Smyrna, is worthy of our attention. They're worth us looking at this morning. Let's look at some of their characteristics. One characteristic that I think we need to note, they struggled with finances. Jesus makes reference to their affliction and their poverty, an unusual reference. Let me tell you a little bit about their situation. This church was located in the city of Smyrna, very proud, beautiful Asian city. We may have a, a wrong perspective of these cities. Smyrna was not some quaint little thatched hut village. Because it was a Mediterranean coastal city, it was rich with export trade. The city had a population of a little more than 200,000, about the size of Richmond, Virginia. Big city. It boasted a a famous stadium, a huge library, the largest public theater in Asia. But the thing that made it so stressful for the church in Smyrna was the difficult religious situation there. It was a two-headed problem. Smyrna had a great relationship with Rome and therefore the population of Smyrna worshipped the Caesar as Lord. And second, in addition to that, it was a large Jewish population. Now they were shunned somewhat, but this large Jewish population really persecuted the Christians, hated the Christian population. So once it became known that a person was a serious follower of Christ there in Smyrna, it was very hard to find employment. And even if they found employment, it was difficult to hold on to that employment and continue to provide for one's family. So consequently, the people here in the church at Smyrna, the Christians here in the church at Smyrna, had a very difficult time with finances. They couldn't find a job. They couldn't hold down a job. And by extension, then, the church full of these members, suffered financially. You know, as a society, we may not be there yet, but we're headed in that direction. A new report from the Pew Research Center says that folks claiming to be Christians could shrink from current 64% of the American population to as little as 35% by 2070. Projections are, we as not genuine Christians, just those who claim to be Christians, will certainly be in the minority, and the minority may be as low as 35% in the next several years. Our conservative Christian convictions are already hated, and that hatred May make it harder for us to find and keep employment in the future when we become a persecuted minority like Smyrna. That's in our future. That's for our children, for our grandchildren to face. But in a broader sense, I think Jesus is giving a word of encouragement to all Christians who struggle financially. Let's just back up here and confess, there are not many things as gripping and as crushing as serious financial problems. That will damper a person's outlook on life about as fast as anything. Saved or unsaved? Jesus has particular compassion on all who are experiencing financial problems, no matter the cost, no matter the situation. To Smyrna he said this, I know your affliction from poverty, yet you are really rich. You're rich. How are they rich? Apparently in the midst of it all, we're kind of reading between the lines here. Apparently in the midst of it all, these people who are suffering financially, these people knew in the midst of their financial difficulty to turn to Jesus and cry out to Jesus and trust in Jesus, they knew Jesus would carry them through their financial difficulty. So the next question is, what about us? In the midst of our financial difficulties, we need to do the same thing as Smyrna. In the midst of our financial difficulties and struggles, and here we are in the midst of inflation, here we are on the verge of recession, some say we're already in recession, Do we have a relationship with Jesus such that, in the midst of it all, we turn to Jesus? Or do we turn in every other direction? Do we cry out to Jesus? Do we trust in Jesus to carry us through it all? Smyrna did. We need to follow their lead. Agreed? Another characteristic... They were slandered as fanatics. Jesus says in verse 9, He knows that these dedicated Christians at Smyrna are being slandered by the quasi-religious community. People who claim to know God were slandering them, but they didn't really know God. I told you earlier that there was a sizable Jewish population there in Smyrna These were folks who considered themselves to be in a good relationship with God because they were born as physical Jews. They were born, they thought, into the right family. Jesus says here in verse 9, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. Jews was the term, the biblical term, the Old Testament term, used to describe those who were, were in a right relationship with God. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul says this, True circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, not by the spirit. So here's what was happening. Folks there in Smyrna were giving their lives to Christ and were establishing this new life following the Lord. And as a result, their lives were becoming uh, beautifully changed. And as others watched this change in their lives, they were saying, those folks are nuts. Those folks who are Christ followers are fanatics. They're ridiculous. Their lives are changed too much. Those folks are too victorious. Those folks are too joyous. They're fanatics. You know what? This isn't in my notes. Let me just back up here and say Praise God if you're being called a fanatic. You're doing it right. If the culture around you is saying that person's enjoying life too much, if they're saying you're too victorious. Praise God for you. Keep it up. You're going in the right direction. Going in the right direction. Webster's defines fanatic as a person who is marked by excessive enthusiasm. <laughs> excessive, I, I'm sorry. Marked by excessive enthusiasm and intense, uncritical Devotion, unquestioning devotion. I'm devoted to the Lord. I don't care what anybody says. I've got blinders on. I'm going to be sold out to him no matter what. You're a fanatic. You're a fanatic. These folks were selling out to Jesus and getting excited about life. So on the one hand, you have these Christians who are joyous, enthusiastic, fanatical people enjoying life. They shouldn't be, by the way. They're being persecuted. You shouldn't be enjoying life. What's wrong with you? Don't you understand what's going on? You're being persecuted financially. Why are you enjoying life? Whole communities is against you. Why are you enjoying life? What's the deal with you, you fanatic, you nut? <clears throat> so on the one hand, you have these people with this overcoming attitude, and of course others are drawn to that, And on the other hand, you have these folks who cling to rituals or family names or works and don't have spiritual victory or joy in life, and they don't like Christians because the Christians do. Listen to me. There needs to be some difference between us and lost folks. We can't walk around saying, I'm a Christian, unless there's something different about us. If you're a down-in-the-mouth, mule-faced religionist, don't tell folks you follow Jesus. Jesus. Don't tell people you follow the Lord if you're no different than the lost community around us. Only if you're joyful, fanatical, enthusiastic about following Jesus, then let people know it's because I'm a Christ follower. In verse 9, Jesus calls these other folks a synagogue of Satan. Researchers analyzed 23 million headlines published between 2000 and 2019 in the United States and found that headlines have grown significantly more full of anger, fear, disgust, and sadness over these last two decades. According to the Global Peace Index, civic discontent, riots, strikes, and anti-government demonstrations have increased by 244 percent that's going on in the culture around us you know what that says the world is growing alarmingly more angry and hateful while followers of Christ are growing more more joyful and free just stand still as a believer and let the culture decay around you that's what's going on here's some things we should be expecting in life now listen to this carefully Some folks won't like you because you have something they don't have. That should be going on. Some folks won't like you because they are convicted of their own sin when they're around you. And some folks won't like you because of the things you stand for, if you stand for the right stuff. And if you want to know what the right stuff is, take me aside and we'll talk about it. There's another letter addressed to folks who are lukewarm. Here's another characteristic. They suffered physically. Verse 10. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, Jesus says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you'll have affliction for 10 days. Of course, as I've pointed out, the whole book of Revelation is written in this symbolic imagery, which is often difficult for us to understand. But scholars believe this 10 days here is a number symbolizing extreme and complete tribulation. Extreme and complete, and I might add, long-term tribulation. So in addition to struggling with finances and being slandered as fanatics, these Christians at Smyrna are also about to suffer physical, perhaps long-term difficulties. We don't live in a society where we're likely to be physically persecuted for our Christian convictions, although there are places on the earth today where that is happening. I've met some of those people. That should just make us glad we live in this nation. Those of you who have questions whether or not we're still a good nation, we're not being fiscally persecuted for our convictions. But we need to notice something very important here. Question Why is or who is the one who's actually doing the persecution? It's not the world, it's the devil, right? Isn't you know that what it says? It's the devil who's doing the persecuting. And unfortunately, living in the United States doesn't make us immune to Satan. In fact, the more we love and live for Jesus, the more Satan hates us, and the more determined he is to hurt us. How? In any way he can. In any way he can. But I think for our purposes here this morning, we need to remember two things. First, Christians must suffer the pains and misfortunes of life like everyone else. We're not immune to the difficulties of life. We still have the sicknesses. We still have the situations. We still have the difficulties everybody else has. And two, Jesus says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Surely we've all heard of George Frederick Handel and his amazing musical, The Messiah, which includes the majestic Hallelujah Chorus. Have you heard of this? You're old enough. Don't shake your head no. Handel composed that whole thing in just three weeks. It was done at a time when he was going blind. And he was facing being thrown in prison for financial problems. In the midst of it all, he wrote this beautiful musical. He credited the the completion of his work to one ingredient. You won't believe this. Joy. Joy. The Messiah was an outgrowth of the joy that was exploding out of his heart and his mind during this time when he was going blind, he was losing his sight, and he was about to be thrown in prison for physical persecution. He felt as if his heart would burst with joy at what he was hearing in his heart and his mind. Apparently, joy doesn't depend upon our situation. You think? Come on, some of you fanatics. Joy doesn't depend on our situation. Otherwise, he would not have written this Messiah. We want to keep physical persecution. We want to keep physical suffering in the right perspective and not let us get down over it. It may wound us. It shouldn't stop us from experiencing the joy we have in Jesus. With all the challenges Paul faced, including chains, imprisonment, and slander, he wrote in Philippians 4, verse 4 Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, I've always liked that. He's thinking, it sounds like you may not have missed, you may not have understood me the first time I said this. You, You may have been distracted the first time I said this. Rejoice in the Lord always, and just in case you were distracted, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. No matter how harsh physical suffering is or how long it lasts, it's only temporary, and very soon we're going to get to see Jesus. There's no one in here. Let me look around. Maybe one or two. They're going to last for another 50 years. In a half a century, we're all going to be with Jesus. All of us are going to be with Jesus. Let's experience joy now because the suffering is going to last a little while longer, and then we're going to be with Jesus. I hope the second crowd is more responsive than you all. You all are just as dead as hammers. ha, <laughs> Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. <laughs> See, if Linda was here, she'd be scolding me for saying that very thing right there. And that leads this last thing: as we struggle financially, slandered as fanatics, suffer physically, stand up faithfully. Jesus says in verse ten. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So as individuals in the midst of it all, get up. Stand up. Faithfully. As a church who's been through the ringer, for goodness sakes, folks. I've been around. I know a lot of churches. As a church who's been through the ringer, who's been wounded, wounded, wounded. That's all we're going to say about that. Get up. Stand up. Faithfully. Put it behind you. It's over. It's done. Let's stand up, raise up, and get back into the throw of things faithfully. Good. You know, and I struggle over whether or not to bring the sermon to a conclusion using this, but I think I will. I've got a little bit of a military background, so that uh, this kind of stuff is always kind of coming to me. But not long after SEAL Team 6 removed Osama bin Laden, eliminated him, and of course they got lots of publicity, they continued on and they continue on to this day doing their unbelievable work of rescues. You just don't hear about it all the time. Jessica Buchanan, an American AIDS worker, was held prisoner by Somali pirates. In response to that, two dozen Navy SEALs parachuted into southern Somali and freed her. And there's a long story behind that. She wrote this. These are her words. This group of men who've risked their lives for me already ask me now to lie down on the ground. They make a circle around me and then lie down on top of me to protect me. And we lie there like that until the choppers come. To the world, extraordinary. To the seals, just another day's work. It's what they do. Listen to this. It's who they have become. That is a great line. It is who they have become. Smyrna had become an overcoming church, wounded, but they stood up faithfully and continued on with the work. It's who they'd become. Their difficulty didn't define them. As individuals, we're wounded. Absolutely, we're wounded. But that doesn't define us. That's not who we've become, right? Who we've become is we are a church who stands up, gets back at work, and victorious for the Lord. It's who we have become. Smyrna had become a joyous, fanatical church for Christ Jesus. And Wimberley will also, won't we? Amen.